I'm Warren Berkeley with the Laurel Heights Church of Christ. Welcome to our video Bible class in the book of Acts again, chapter 20. This is the video class for January 20, and the topic is Acts chapter 20. We will do a little map work at the beginning of our class. We'll follow Luke's narrative of events, and then one of the most moving passages, Paul's farewell speech to the Ephesian elders. All of this in Acts chapter 20. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing through these videos. I'm going to begin with what I call four fast facts. You can see them there on the screen. We are in the third missionary journey. Actually, it has its beginning in Luke's documentation back in Acts 18.23 and it continues over through Acts chapter 20 and verse 38. Paul's hope is to arrive in Jerusalem and then on to Rome, and in the Roman letter he mentions even an interest in arriving in Spain. Remember as we enter into chapter 20 that there had been that riot in Ephesus. The end of that is referenced in the first verse that we will study in this class. We will also observe Paul is not traveling alone. A team of other Christians are with him. Before we get to the text, I want to put this map up, one view of the map, to enable us to be geographically oriented to the text. Paul departed from Antioch, that's back in Acts 18.23, and I have that notated on that map over to the right by Antioch. He travels north and west and back through places where there were now local churches, Derby, Lystra, Iconium. Eventually, he comes to what might be called the other Antioch in Pisidia, into Asia, to Ephesus, where we were in Acts 19. We read about that riot. And now here we are in the study of chapter 20 to Troas, Macedonia, Greece, back toward the southeast to Miletus, where there is a meeting with the Ephesian elders. Geographically, that's what we'll cover in this class, but most of chapter 20 concerns Paul's final meeting with the elders of the church at Ephesus, this happened at Miletus. If you'll notice on the map, this red box that you see shows primarily the location of our study in Acts chapter 20. I'm going to start now, Acts chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater the Berean, son of Phyrus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and the Asians, 
Tychicus, and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. I think it is not necessary to spend a lot of time with this. This is mostly narrative about people and places showing Paul's movement after the Ephesian riot. And as we see on the map over to Macedonia, to Greece, the chief aim seems to be to encourage the Christians in those areas. They were new Christians still, likely mostly first-generation Christians. The Jews continued to plot against Paul at about the time Paul wants to set sail for Syria. Change of plans back through Macedonia. Verse 6 takes us to Troas. This sounds like it all happened quickly over a short span of time. Not really. Luke is just using a compressed summary format to get us to Troas. And did you notice in verse 5? that Luke was with the group at this point. He says, these went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. Let's read now 7 through 16. We're in Acts 20, 7 through 16. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed, and they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Asos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Asos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene, and sailing from there we came the following day opposite Chios. The next day we touched at Samos, and the day after we came to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus, so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. I'll have more to say about some of this during my takeaways. Here I mention there isn't any doubt in my mind this was a first day of the week worship, which included the Lord's Supper at Troas. Down in verse 11, there is a common meal they shared afterwards. At verse 7, what I'm seeing is, this was first day of the week worship, which included taking the Lord's Supper at Troas. 
There's an interesting case here described by Luke about this man, Eutychus. The first part of the story is simple. He fell asleep while Paul was preaching. The next part of the story is more dramatic. He fell three stories to the ground level. They thought he was dead. Paul said his life is in him. Since Luke uses the word dead in verse 9, then he is alive at verse 11. A miracle is implied. We know the apostle Paul had that ability conferred upon him by God, part of his credentials as an apostle. I will mention, though, that some commentators believe, since Luke doesn't specify this as a miracle or resurrection, Paul simply discovered that the man was not really dead. My reaction would not be defiant or critical about that conclusion, so long as we acknowledge God certainly gave Paul that ability, the signs of an apostle, whether he used it here or not. After a meal and more time with the church at Troas, Paul went by land while others went by sea. And all this takes us to Miletus. I don't know if you ever heard this, but it has been said, if you took all the people who sleep during sermons and lay them out end to end, they would be more comfortable. Let us note the man who fell asleep is not condemned by Luke or Paul or anyone. We do not know the circumstances. We cannot assume a boring sermon. He was young, and there may have been other unknown factors that contributed to this. One more observation before we move on. I want to notice something with you. Several times in the New Testament mention is made of the first day of the week. Isn't it interesting? Luke never speaks of the other days of the week in the same way. Luke could have said the next day, or the eighth day, or the second day. Isn't it clear? New Testament writers assigned special significance to the first day of the week. Jewish time was from sunset to sunset. However, this took place in Troas, Gentile territory in the Roman Empire, time would be reckoned in Roman time from midnight to midnight. I'm convinced Luke is using Roman time. Now, to the heart of the chapter, Acts chapter 20, without diminishing what we've studied so far, the, the heart of Acts chapter 20 begins at verse 17, takes us over to verse 38. Listen carefully. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing 
what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. And they embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all, because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Reading this, your first impression. This was an intensely emotional meeting between Paul and these elders. That emotion has to do with their love for God and their love for each other. The pressing and obvious possibility of not seeing each other again was on their minds, certainly. And of course, the dangers all Christians faced in terms of both internal and external threats. But the strongest tie they had and the priority they shared in life was their love for God and from that, their love for each other. I want to make three general observations and then in my takeaways, I'll have more to say about the specific statements of Paul on this very moving occasion. I want to highlight Paul called the elders of the church to come to him. I don't think any faithful Christian would have been excluded. 
there is no indication of a secret or closed meeting, but elders have a function of oversight, spiritual oversight. So it was critical for Paul to address these matters of concern to them. This was for everyone, but it needed to be directed initially to the elders of the church. Further, I want to point out, Paul had a function no preacher today has. Paul was an apostle of Jesus Christ. I'm going to give you an illustration. I can't go to Galveston and ask the elders in the Houston churches to come see me. Uh, not in the way Paul invited these men. There is nothing here that would sanction or form a pattern of preachers today calling elders together when those preachers are not members of that church. Paul had preached at Ephesus, and remember, this is key, he was an apostle of Christ. I also want to make the point, as an apostle of Christ, Paul had the ability to know fierce wolves were coming that false teachers would arise from among them. Preachers today may see signs of such a thing or have some knowledge of approaching danger, but we do not have the divine prophetic insight God gave to the Apostle Paul. Then I want to bring up, Paul quoted the words of Jesus. And perhaps in your Bible, if you have what is commonly called a red letter edition in verse 35, it says what Jesus had said, and it has it in red. It is more blessed to give than to receive. So this was an apostle of Christ meeting with the elders of a local church to encourage them and warn them and admonish them. Let's go into our takeaways. Acts 27, Acts chapter 20 and verse 7, that reference that's, that's all the information we have about the day to observe the Lord's Supper, the first day of the week. Now, there is certainly other information in the New Testament about the first day of the week and about the Lord's Supper. Concerning the first day of the week, a lot of information. Jesus' resurrection, the day of Pentecost, mention is made of the first day of the week in 1 Corinthians 16, and Revelation chapter 1, the Lord's Day, the first day of the week. That, that has significance. But this is all we have about the day on which the disciples took the Lord's Supper. Now, that's not a problem. We don't need something to be said two dozen times. But when we come to Acts 27, chapter 20 and verse 7, it is good to recognize this is all we have. They took the Lord's Supper on the first day of the week. I'm convinced they took the Lord's Supper on every first day of the week. There is a lot right here in the context that signifies the Lord's Supper on a day when they regularly met. In the rest of my takeaway time, I want to draw from what Paul said to those elders. This is a gold mine of spiritual treasure we cannot exhaust in one class, but here's some highlights. We learn about Paul. While he was an apostle of Christ and prominent in the Lord's work in the first century, he viewed himself in terms of humility and service. Verse 19, 
serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. Verse 19, I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. An apostle of Christ, well known, respected highly by faithful Christians, with a heart of such grace, humility, and so selfless in his work. No resentment. In fact, he's headed to Jerusalem with no expectation that there will be some parade in his honor, not knowing what will happen to me, verse 22. For us, this serves as such a good, clear example of humility, unselfish humility, uncompromising commitment to preach the gospel. This should be so attractive to us. We desire this depth of character, and we can have it in Jesus Christ. The New Testament is gold for us, giving us not just instruction about good character, but illustrations from the lives of real people. Paul helps us understand humility and service, even at a time when he was routinely mistreated. It is further to be noted carefully that Paul didn't hold anything back. Paul didn't hold anything back. Verse 20, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. Verse 27, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Folks, you don't want a preacher or teacher who holds back written truth from God. You don't want a preacher or teacher who will just preach and teach what you're comfortable with, what you're familiar with, what the world likes to hear. You want a preacher who will give you the whole counsel of God. Now, a preacher can't do that in one sermon. But in his sermon planning and writing and classwork, nothing God has revealed for us today should be held back. The charge to the gospel preacher is preach the word, 2 Timothy 4, and that means all of it, holding back truth, not declaring all that God says, makes a person just as guilty as teaching outright error. People need all of God's truth. <clears throat> this passage tells us about elders, their function. And their function is to be certain the flock is fed the whole counsel of God. They are to be devoted to the care of the church. The alertness and care for saints, all of that is implied and stated in this text. Sewell Hall, gospel preacher, said, Paul instructed these elders to take heed to all the flock among whom the Holy Spirit has made them overseers to shepherd the church of God. They needed to be concerned for all the Lord's sheep who had been assigned to them to feed, lead, and protect them with their lives. One more thing, where there is danger, it is spiritually healthy to talk about it, but when you talk about it, 
you use God's word to define the issue and to defend yourselves. Paul not only describes what was ahead, the danger, the threats of false teaching, he indicates how they were to be prepared for it. They are to remember what Paul taught them and how Paul acted among them. They are to remember the words of Jesus Christ. They are to care for each other. And look with me now at verse 32. I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. This is the Christian strength. Our source of life and spiritual health and our standard to measure everything. I cannot be strong. I cannot be ready for future threats without the nourishment and the knowledge of God's word. I commend you to God and to the word. If you want God without his word, that won't work. If you want the word without God, that won't work. Paul connected the author with the book. I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. A preacher I was close to for many years, a very good man who is now with the Lord, ended every sermon with this statement. I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. Quite effective and memorable. Now, that's the end of our study, but I'm going to ask you to stay tuned <clears throat> after this final slide you see here. Since we're coming to the end of Paul's missionary journeys, at the end of this video, I'm going to run a three-minute video produced by Brother Scott Smelser, and that will enable us to start the process of reviewing the three missionary journeys of Paul documented here in the book of Acts. And so as I conclude, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. Stay tuned now because there's a three-minute video that will follow. For a simple review of the missionary journeys, follow along with Paul in this three-minute overview of Acts 13 through 28. Journey 1. Called out from Antioch of Syria, Barnabas and Saul, also known as Paul, sailed to Cyprus with John Mark as an aide. They worked westward till Papus, where they had given an audience with the Roman proconsul Sergius Paulus. A false prophet in the proconsul circle tries to interfere, but the proconsul believes. Sailing north to Perga, John leaves for home, but Paul and Barnabas continue on to Antioch of Pisidia, where Paul preaches Christ in the synagogue. On the next Sabbath, with many pagans coming out to hear, synagogue leaders rise in opposition. Paul then turns to the Gentiles, and the word spreads widely. Eventually, synagogue and city leaders cast Paul and Barnabas out of the city, and they move on to Iconium, where many Jews and Gentiles are converted during an extended stay. But when enemies plan to stone Paul and Barnabas, they escape south to Lystra, where Paul heals a man crippled from birth. Amazed, the locals presume them to be gods and ready a sacrifice, which they refuse. But things turn violent when agitators from Antioch and Iconium pursue. Paul is stoned, dragged from the city, and left for dead. Surviving, Paul and Barnabas move on to Derby and teach many, after which they reroute and return to Antioch, Assyria. During this interim, some men from Judea come in and attempt to Judaize the church here. This takes Paul to Jerusalem and back in resolution of the issue. Journey 2. Wanting to revisit the churches from the first journey, but not agreeing whether to take John Mark again, Paul and Barnabas split ways and split the work. 
Barnabas and John Mark go to Cyprus, while Paul and Silas, a prophet from Jerusalem, head northwest. Returning to Derby and Lister, Paul is joined by young Timothy. Traveling further to Troas, he is joined by Luke the physician. Sailing to Macedonia, they come to Philippi, where Lydia, a woman of means, hears the word, believes, and is baptized. Later, Paul and Silas are beaten and jailed, but before morning, the jailer himself hears the word, believes, and is baptized. Coming to Thessalonica, Paul faces synagogue opposition, but has a productive work. When opponents assault a house where he bent, Paul and Silas go by night to Berea, where the gospel is better received in the synagogue, and many believe. When Thessalonian enemies pursue, Paul sails to Athens, where he engages philosophers and speaks to Areopagus. Coming to Corinth, the capital of Achaia and a notoriously immoral city, Paul labors a year and a half, and many believe and are baptized. After pausing at Ephesus, but hoping to return, Paul sails back east. Third journey. Returning to Ephesus, Paul spends about three years in this leading city, and the gospel spreads widely, so much so that idol makers fearing a loss in sales ignite a large riot. Paul revisits Macedonian Greece, receiving contributions for poor saints in Jerusalem. Discovering a plot is against him as he's about to sail back, Paul reroutes to Macedonia. Luke rejoins him as he sails to Troas, and he meets with the Ephesian elders at Miletus. Then, despite warnings of his impending arrest, he returns to Jerusalem, where he's falsely accused, imprisoned for two years in Caesarea, appeals to Caesar, and sails through storm and shipwreck as a prisoner to Rome, where he continues to teach and write. And that's where the book of Acts ends. See 3MinuteBibleStudy.com for more videos.